this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Industrial Device Investments. One of the ways to sell your business is through a minority or majority recapitalization. What's that? Well, it's where a private equity group or PE firm buys your business. You get to take some of the money off the table and keep your job running your company as CEO and shareholder. Now, the problem with a lot of these so-called PE deals is that the investor not always, but in many cases, is a money guy or gal with no clue how to run a business. And that's why industrial device investments is so different. They are operators, just like you, and they understand what it takes to build a business. The firm was founded by a guy named John Dalton. Look him up on LinkedIn. He's an engineer and spent years at GE and Black & Decker before becoming a full-time investor. Here's the thing. You want maximum value for your business and a bright future for your employees. And that's where Industrial Device Investments comes in. They speak your language, not the jargon of the finance guys. And they invest their own money and don't answer to outside shareholders. An interesting option for sure. Visit idinvest.net to find out more. That's idinvest.net. Check them out. So Mitchell Reitgut is our next guest, and a couple things to be on the lookout for here. So Mitchell has decided to sell his business in in kind of two parts. The first part to a private equity group, but he carried some of his equity forward, and then ultimately they sold it again more recently in 2018, uh, and he continues to work in the company going forward. And I think it's an interesting opportunity for folks where we think of selling sometimes as sort of a one-off event and then riding off into the sunset. In this case, Mitchell chose to a more evolutionary process, selling, again, parts to a private equity group, agreeing to stay on, keep some equity in the company, and then ultimately selling again, but again, agreeing to stay on. Uh, more evolution than revolution. He shares some really interesting advice around how to evaluate potential investors in your company. Some really tough questions that he asked his investors and I think really sound things to remember as you evaluate potential exit options, which may include uh, a private equity deal. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Mitchell Reichert. Mitchell Reichert, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, not a problem. So tell me about June Group. What did you guys, or what do you guys do? June Group is a company I started out of my house many years ago. Uh, We're an advertising technology company, and our job is to get millions of people to watch videos across different devices from Fortune 500 brands. So uh, you could see a pharma ad, fast food commercial, all kinds of things. And typically we run in what we call MOCA, mobile casual games. So apps on your cell phone. And instead of interrupting you with an ad, you opt in when you're ready. And in return, you get access to content or game points or something else uh, for, for your time. 
Okay, so this is going to be the worst interview ever because I don't game. <laughs> I know nothing about gaming and I don't even let my kids really game. So I'm going to be like the worst. I, so, okay, I all kidding aside, I do have an iPhone. I have seen people play games on a phone before. So if I'm playing a game, like how would you insert an advertising message into that experience? I'm, I'm confused. Well, games are so interesting because they are wildly, crazily popular. Something like 150 million Americans play every that, single day. This is just your way of saying that I'm a loser. <laughs> that was my point. Yeah. That's, okay, that's, got it. I love to insult just, people just when they invite me on their show because that, yeah. that was really where I was going. Um, yeah. No, they're just, I mean, if, if you, I'm fond of saying I take the train from New York into Connecticut every day, past some very wealthy towns, and you see people in $3,000 suits playing Candy Crush and Crossy Road in every chair. Um, <laughs> So if you look around, you'll see they're pretty popular. And what we love about them is they're totally brand safe. You know, imagine a puzzle game or it's with friends, something like that. And and um, they're so broadly popular that we can reach over 100 million people and all kinds of different demographics. So, okay, so I, I know you're I'm not. Playing, a, yeah. So I'm playing Crossy Road on the train to Connecticut. How would you how would I see an ad from one of your clients as I'm playing the game? What would that look well, like? Each game developer is very sensitive about their users. You know, it costs a lot of money to get somebody to download your app and, and to keep using it. So they really don't want it to be a bad experience for you if you have chosen to do that. So they will determine when and where that interaction happens. Typically, it's a place in the game um, where you know you can go when you want to power up or you know you can go to this place to, to see more content. Um, it's very much like what happens in Hulu where you can front load the ad experience and then enjoy the stuff you want to enjoy. Got it. Okay, great. And so can a user, again, this is really for my own edification, could a user uh, upgrade to a paid version of the app where they don't see your messages? Um, often our, uh, app developer partners do have paid versions, but the beauty of this is it's not annoying you. It's never going to interrupt you. Um, it's there when you want it. And because of that, the app developer gets tremendous value because as I already indicated, they're, they're conscious of their users and want to protect them. And our advertiser gets a wonderful value because the only people that are participating in their brand ad have chosen to do so. And we have all kinds of targeting techniques that, you know, we will tell our advertiser, this is an 18 to 34 year old female. And, and we can be really specific. She cooks with organic ingredients or she's in the market to buy a car or whatever it is. Um, and that's good for the advertiser. It's also good for the person, the recipient, because they're going to see a message that's relevant to them. And that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah, for sure. So, so how do you make money? What's the economic model? Like, who do you charge and how much, like, how does that work? We charge our clients. It's kind of a pay for what you get model. It's called a cost per engagement. So maybe they'll pay us when somebody finishes a video or, or it's a little cheaper to pay when the video just starts and we have very high completion rates regardless. Um, some of our clients will pay for a click to their website um, after a video all kinds of different uh, mechanisms there, but the main thrust of it is that you get what you pay for and you don't have to pay in advance for something that you might not enjoy the benefits from. And the client's responsible for the creative in the ad? Most of the time, yes. And so how do you protect against crappy creative? 
<laughs> well, it's funny that you asked that because I'm a former art director. And when we started this business, I thought I knew pretty clearly what was good creative in quotes and what was not. And yet what I learned pretty quickly is that I don't always know what's best because let's imagine a really unexciting project uh, for, a, you know, a discount tomato sauce. Well, you know, a, a side by side about how thick and rich and juicy this tomato sauce is might not be very interesting, you know, but if you're a mom on a budget and you can get something with quality ingredients and, and it's available in your local store, it might actually be pretty interesting to you. So we have seen things that you or I might say, well, that's not a very creative ad. That's not very good. Quote unquote. We've seen those pieces of creative be exceedingly effective, especially when they're targeted properly. And I'm fond of saying how and when somebody finds your creative in, in today's market is as important as that creative, because if it's uh, some pop-up ad or it's, it's not relevant to you, or it's in a, a website that, that, you know, where it doesn't belong, it's, it's to be even irritating or off-putting to that consumer. Whereas if you're finding it in the right way and you're discovering it on your own, under your own power, when you're ready, it can be very powerful. So that's interesting. So, so in essence though, in a, if you're paying kind of for someone to complete the viewing of a video, I know that's only one of your models. There's other models that you've got, but at some level you are almost co-investing with your customer because if they do have crappy creative that doesn't resonate with the 34 year old mom or whatever, then you kind of bear some of the brunt of that. Well, we're pretty confident, you know, we've been doing this for a long time and, and we have some tremendous consistent numbers across. We work, 15 or 20 different vertical categories of different kinds of brands. And we know consistently we can get 90 something percent of people to watch. To really? the end. That's incredible. Yep. That's amazing. And that's really about right message, right audience, matching those two things up. Well, partially, see, the easy part of what we do is getting somebody to complete because you're going to get something at the end. And, and that's kind of the biggest knock. This, this whole system, we call it value exchange. And other, okay. other people might call it rewarded advertising. And people will say, well, it's bribery. Of course, they're going to watch till the end. You know, they're getting something for it. But, you know, so that's sort of the, the easiest thing for us to do. What's harder and what we still do consistently is after the person's gotten their reward, after they're done, they're ready to go back to their game. They're ready to go back to their content, whatever it is. We still get two or three or sometimes five or 6% of people taking actions afterwards. They're visiting our clients' websites. They're liking them on social media. They're downloading coupons. That two or 3% is five times higher than the industry average. Yeah, that's And huge. we do it consistently. And to us, that's the proof that we've, we've made the connection with the targeting and everything else. Okay. So I think I get the business. You mentioned that you started this thing out of your house. Um, how did you... How did you finance the the growth of it? Was it is it a service model? Did you, like did you need a lot of capital? You know, we did not need a lot of capital. It was a service model. When I started it out of my house, I had no idea what I wanted to do with myself. I had just left a really big job at an international ad agency. Um, and here I was, you know, with a couple of kids and a mortgage and a cat and the whole thing and, and no way to make a living um, because I had become very disillusioned with the industry I was in. Um, so I just started to do the things that I knew I was good at. I, I could create ads. I could do brand strategy. I could build websites. 
And after a year or two of that, I found I was quite good at it. Never really set out to be an entrepreneur. It was never uh, uh, um, a dream of mine, but I, I did like it. And I liked the control uh, that it gave me and the, it, it's difficult. To, and it was very difficult in those early days, but there was a comfort that I had because it was taking all of the politics and all of the stress of not being in control of things out of my life. And over time, as I got into it and I committed to it, I started learning, this is sort of the formative years of ad tech. I don't even think it was a word back then in 2001, 2002, but I started learning about the technology and getting really into it. And this model just sort of evolved over time. And, you know, I was meeting some smart people, a few of whom became my partners. And um, it's funny when you commit to something and you're open-minded about it, um, it can take you to places that you never thought you would go before. So the partners, you shared equity with them or did you like partners in air quotes did, did, or did you, did you guys kind of divvy up some of the equity together? No, I, I did definitely divvy up the equity and I brought in a few people that I knew and trusted. Um, and at one point there were four of us uh, that ran this business and the four of us ran it together successfully for many, many years. Um, now there's two of us after a few exits, which is, you know, sort of intuitive. Um, but uh it's it's like a marriage it takes a lot of work. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to dig in there. So so you got let's get into the exit because you got um, you sort of did it in two parts. Um, and even before we get to the 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 Hallier deal, I'd love to go even a step back because at one point you considered. Uh, potentially kind of venture capital as a, as a, as a financing vehicle, maybe talk a little bit about what precipitated that and then how you evaluated those VC deals. Sure. Well, you know, you can imagine me in my house um, with nothing and going and getting a job here and a job there, some regional advertisers, a few national advertisers, built some websites, developed this technology gave it away for free a couple of times as proof of concept, you know, by hook or by crook. Um, and you fast forward a few years. Now there's five or six of us in a little hovel on 39th street in Manhattan, this terrible little office. Um, and, and we're making a million dollars a year, call it, you know, back then. Making, um, you mean revenue? Revenue, right. Yeah. Top line of the company. So scraping by and, and, you know, growing and seeing some promise and along comes a venture capital firm and, and they're promising you $10 million or $15 million as they do for a small minority share of the company. And it's a, it's an enormously appealing thing. Um, and you know, I had been around long enough to have seen that go right and to see it go wrong, uh, up close. And, you know, I, I was savvy enough, I guess, or experienced enough to know what the odds are of success. And, you know, we just felt at the time that for all the drama and trouble of raising a round of capital, we could go and get some clients instead. And that was kind of our mindset at the time, because not only the VCs, but you have angels and you have all these, these different options open to you. And it's so much time and energy that you have to put into that. We just felt like, my God, if we took that time and energy and just went out and sold, we could sell four or five million dollars worth of stuff. And wouldn't that be better? And that's what we wound up doing. And, you know, we paid a, a heavy price for that. Um, but I also think there were some significant benefits. Uh, I'm fond of saying you pick your poison. And that was just the, the path that we chose. What was the, what were the price that, what was the price that you paid for not accepting that VC deal? 
Well, a lot of our competitors and, you know, frenemies in the industry, because we actually really like these guys and knew them quite well, went the other route. And you could just see them exploding in terms of people and they would get all this press and they would have a high profile and our clients all knew who they were. And very few people knew who we were because we were small. They could make mistakes and hire a bunch of people and then let them go. Whereas, you know, for us to, you know, make a mistake on a salesperson, for instance, could literally put the company out of business. So we, we were much lower profile. I'd say that um, we probably weren't having the same kind of salary uh, enjoyment that, that our, our competitors, you know, we weren't making a lot of money. Sometimes at, at various points, we were paying our salespeople more than we were paying ourselves. Um, and it was slow, you know, it's just slow growth and that could kill you. Um, it can also help you depending on the circumstances. Um, the benefits, however, were tremendous where we were creating our own company. We answered to no one. We became disciplined, rigorous business people. We, we learned a ton um, and we were making money every single month, you know, uh, profitability. And that we were very proud of uh, for years and years and years. This, this company, and we are today, still profitable. Fantastic. So, so let's get into the, the, the Halyard deal because in 2015, um, you chose to sell, I guess, a portion of your company. Maybe talk a little bit about what triggered that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you and I were talking before we started here about investment bankers. And one of the things that was happening to us as as we sort of rose in prominence slowly over the years was investment bankers became really interested in us. And, and we got to meet little ones, big ones from all over the country, sometimes all over the world, pitching us, I can help you sell your company. I can help you sell your company. How big and, are you, you know, at this it, point? Like in terms of revenue or number of employees, like just give us a sense of how big you are at the point you're getting these pitches. Uh, so, okay. And I, I mentioned in the early 2000s, we we're five or six people. I think fast forward to 2013, 2014, we're maybe 20, 25 people. We have a little office in Chicago by then, I believe, playing around with some people on the West Coast, not very successfully at first. Um, and, you know, growing a, growing a company, I, I would say, I use the word disciplined in a really responsible, disciplined way. Um, and, you know, so we started to meet these people and, and investment bankers are great teachers and they see a lot of things that you don't see and they can introduce you to people. And that's sort of how they build a relationship with you and show you the potential value they could leave by saying, oh, I bet you'd love to work with this client here. I'll introduce you. And they do. Um, so we started to get a sense of what a sale would be like. And it was never really on our radar. Um, we created the company because we wanted to have a great place to work and we believed in what we we're doing and, you know, uh, really old fashioned values about treat your people well, create great products, solve problems. We, we were big believers in that. And yet, the, you know, the, the promise of vast riches and fame and fortune um, started to dawn on us. And I'd say by 2015, our profile slowly, methodically had come up to the point where we were really uh, getting some people's attention, um, including some of the really best investment bankers. You know, and there, there are some that are younger and less established. Uh, there are some that are just huge. Um, and then there are sort of elite ones. And the really elite ones were saying, eh, you know, we like you, but 
you guys are not really ready for us yet. And what we started to hear from some of the ones that we thought were, were the top was, you know what? I think I could sell this and I think you guys could benefit and do really well. Um, one of these groups was a firm called Jordan Edmiston. And we had known one of the principals there, a guy by the name of Tolman Jeffs for years and thought really highly of him. And he had tutored us and spent a lot of time with us. And we really thought he was one of the better, um, one of the better investment bankers in our sector. Um, and he started saying, you know, listen, we could run a process for you and here's what it would look like. And here's what you'd have to do. And he started telling us about private equity firms. And, you know, I already talked to you about VCs, private equity is a little bit different. Um, and as he started to teach us about it, we became um, really interested in it. And, and we decided to run a process in 2015. And it was not an easy decision. Uh, but all of us, there were four of us at that point, unanimously felt it was the right time for a whole host of reasons I'm happy to get into. And we went with it and had a number of different opportunities. And the private equity uh, firm Halyard Capital stood out among them. Uh, for a number of reasons, and we wound up doing a deal, and it, it turned out to be one of the best things we ever did. So, tell me about um, w- when it comes to private equity in general. You mentioned that the firm, your the M and A firm, Jordan Emmiston, was complimentary or suggested private equity. What was it about a PE deal that sounded attractive to you guys? Well, the investment banker said there are a bunch of ways private equity functions and there are lots of different kinds of private equity firms. And I'm not, I don't consider myself an aficionado here, just the experience that I had. Halyard was a relatively small group. Um, I don't know financially how they would compare, but small in terms of people, there were, you know, four or five of them and um, that are principals in the company. And we really got along with them and, and they felt like you know, wow, these guys are coming even in the early meetings with insights about our business and probing questions that are making us uh, think differently about our company. And we really felt like this was a group that could help us. And that was so important because there are lots of ways to get investment. And, you know, money is one thing and it's great. Um, but if, if, you, if the thing is you have to show up every day and people talk about the word exit and most of the time it's not an exit, it's just a, a, an evolution, a next step. And, you know, you, you think about all the headlines about how great this deal was or that deal. But the way we were thinking of it is, OK, we do some transaction. These are people we're going to have to work with every day. They're going to be partners, family. And we really liked the people and respected the brains and the ability. You know, for me, I, I'm not the financial guy. I could watch uh, Brendan um, in that group look at a spreadsheet and just see pictures in his head and he would ask us all these probing questions just based on a bunch of numbers. And um, it was exciting, the prospect of working with them. So that's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons we did it. Got it. And did you get offers from other uh, like non-private equity groups, so like strategic buyers or any, anyone else? You know, we had a lot of a lot of interest at that point. And it, the, the strategics at that point weren't really seeing us the way, and that was another thing. Halyard had the vision to see what we could be. And the strategics at that point were looking at us literally as what we were. And we were smaller back then, much smaller. Um, so it wasn't as exciting um, financially or structurally. We didn't see the, the strategic at that point that you know, could light us on fire and help us explode. Um, we saw some deals and, and you know, you could, we made arguments for them, but the private equity route was compelling. 
um, because we thought, wow, this, this thing is like putting a turbojet on the back of the company. They're really going to help us and um, add something that we haven't had. And, you know, we, we um, had never, for instance, had a board of directors or a board of advisors. And I was fond of saying we, we had been drinking our own Kool-Aid for a long time and gotten into these patterns working together for so many years that we could convince ourselves something was right. But the guys from Halyard would, would really challenge us and push us and make us explain why we were compensating people this way or why we had structured the technology that way. And it was a great discipline for us. You know, there, there are a lot of, um, you know, kind of horror stories around private equity. So I'm, I'm really pleasantly surprised to hear a, a really good story. Like a, it was a very positive experience. It sounds like talk, a, talk a little bit about the deal. If you can, I know we can't talk about the actual price they paid, but I'd, mm-hmm. I'd be curious to know how did, how did you guys structure it? I'm assuming you, you stayed on as, as investors in some level, like you were asked to keep some of your equity in the business. Yes, the partners had significant equity in the business and Halyard purchased significant equity in the business. And we had an understanding right from the very beginning that we were this was a partnership and that it was going to uh, fail or succeed based on our ability to cooperate and respect each other and come to good decisions and leverage each other's strengths. And, you know, I <laughs> having worked with three other partners for so many years, I, I can say that we were pretty good at that kind of thing. We're very good at being a family and having a productive family spat, you know, and getting it all on the table and not taking it personally. Um, what's the What's the secret in your experience for for doing that? Because I think you know you've had a great experience. I could I could probably list out ten other people who have had an absolutely horrific experience where the private equity company comes and starts to graft some management theory onto their company and 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 the whole thing becomes this acrimonious, you know, relationship that that's totally dysfunctional. And the owner ends up, you know, you know, suing the I mean it's just a disaster. But your case it worked. What was your secret sauce? I mean, I'm sure the guys are are good and reputable, but what did you personally do that made it work? A couple of things. Um, first we did our research. And I already mentioned, I'm not a finance guy. My partner, Corey, is a Wharton MBA, so much more sophisticated around these um, these types of deals than, than I was. And, and our investment bank was terrific also in educating us, as I've mentioned before. Um, but I spent a lot of time reading about private equity firms, and that is not a book I would normally pick up. Poor guy. Uh, you know, um, and so going in with our eyes open was so important, knowing what to expect, asking them tough questions. You know, what how did you are, learn? What kind of questions did you ask them? Well, you know, what are your expectations? Where do you want this to go? How do you see it growing? You know, what would you do if this went wrong? How would you deal with it if we were underperforming? You know, and, and we checked the references and I said, I don't want to hear guys that, that had a great time with you. I want to hear some people that struggled because what if we struggle? How does that happen? And, you know, we, we asked a lot of really hard questions on both sides and they asked us hard questions. So going into it with our eyes open was vitally important, knowing what their expectations were, how they were, they wanted to run the business, how it was going to change, what they could bring, what they couldn't bring, um, what kind of decisions would would uh, they leave to us, and where would they want to be involved? Lots of details, like for months. And then the other thing I think that was just so important was the dedication to it. You know, that's one thing that June Group has always had, which is just we will not stop. 
we're going to succeed. I don't care what happens. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many gut punches I have to take. And that has just been sort of our mantra since day one. It's just, that's how we, that's how we work. And so, you know, I don't want to paint this picture for your listeners. Like this was some panacea. We had lots of, lots of fireworks and times that we really disagreed with Halyard and disagreed with the partners. And, you know, we, we had to part with one of our partners during the Halyard relationship. It wasn't easy for anybody. Um, um, you know, we'd worked together for a long time and it was just time to, to part ways and, and not in an easy way. Um, but you know, again, how did you deal had, with that is how did you deal with the partnership element? Cause there's, they kind of own equity, right? Like how did you kind of unwind yeah. that? Well, we had papered it really well. And again, we, you know, no fooling around. It's, we spent months and months with the partnership agreements and Halyard knew the details of those agreements, just like we did. And just like this other partner did. And it, even though it wasn't, you know, pleasant, there was no big fireworks because it was all sort of written down and written down very carefully. And we had discussed it at length. So in this fairly negative scenario, everybody worked out well. And it, it was, you know, we parted on good terms and, and worked through uh, some of the numbers and some of the, the pieces of it in a, in a really positive way. Um, and the planning around that is what made it work. Um, because because you, you thought about it in advance. Way far in advance. And yeah. How do you, uh, yeah, I, I mean, again, I think people would be very curious uh, I mean, you, you're you say you're not an aficionado on these things, but I think you're you're a deep aficionado on uh, on on making a partnership work. You've made a successful partnership work at June Group. You, you've obviously made it work with Halyard Group, and in circumstances that doesn't always. So I think you you're a great person to ask about partnerships. When when they fail, when your partner, in this case, it, you needed to part ways, like how do again? If I'm asking you a question, you can't answer. I totally appreciate that. But how do you raise the money? to buy them out. Did, do you have to like actually write a check? Do they carry their equity to some exit? Like how does that work in a partnership? I've never had one, so I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's different in every situation and that's what you have to contemplate. And I, I think that's where a lot of entrepreneurs really go wrong because let's say you're in business with your friends. It's very uncomfortable to sit there and say, you know, if I have to fire you, what happens? Or, you know, if you quit, in the middle of something, what, you know, what's going to happen to the company and what is, how are we going to determine how much of your equity is worth and how are we going to determine who gets a check at what time? And what if you want to leave and the company doesn't have any money, what happens in that scenario? And, you know, we, and, and all four of us at the time spent, I God only knows how many hours hashing this stuff out. And it can be acrimonious at times, you know, cause it's, you're, you're talking about, you're not talking about fairy tale, rainbow and sunshine um, opportunities. You're talking about situations where things are really going awry or, you know, to people that used to be friends are no longer friends. What happens then? And that's why so the determination mean, is so, so important because you so have you to may not, be determined to get through it. Okay. So you may not be able to speak to specifically about this one employee situation, which I totally appreciate. But if, if you and I were at a bar and just talking about a situation, and I was thinking about going into a partnership with a friend of mine, what advice would you give me around the payout 
associated with one of us choosing to leave. So let's imagine that we're both partners, we've taken on some investment, so there's there's an investor at the table and 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 one of us decides, you know what, I'm out or I need to be out. <laughs> um like do do I get a check or is like how would you structure it so that that there was like that there was enough money to pay that person? Like I'm 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 interested in the kind of mechanics of structuring it. Sure. You know, if you're, if you're writing a business plan, there's a thing called a sensitivity analysis. You say, okay. on one end of the scale, the company's in terrible shape. On the other end, it's booming. And then here are three or four scenarios in between. When you sit down with your partners to create a legal contract, you kind of want to do that too. And you want to think of as many scenarios as you can, especially negative ones um, and positive ones too. Um, you want to talk about who has the power to make the decision? How many people does it take? And a great lawyer uh, can really, really help you. And we've worked with a number of attorneys uh, through our time here at June Group and had some terrific ones that helped us with this. So, you know, I can't tell you that one structure is right for everybody because it depends on the type of partnership and the type of investment. And there's all kinds of dynamics. But to the extent that you can think it through and really flesh out these scenarios, you're going to just be so much better off later on when the fur is flying and maybe tempers are up and, and, you know, there's real money at stake. That's not when you want to be figuring it out. No, for sure. So with the sensitivity analysis, is that a, you said, you know, a scenario where the company's struggling versus booming. Are, are you putting um, objective quantitative measures to define booming versus struggling, or is that it, it, like a qualitative interpretation? Like, I'm no. curious about the sensitivity analysis. Yeah, it, well, it, sensitivity analysis, that's a finance word. I'm just sort of transposing it here into, into the legal world, um, you know, in, in a, found, a founder's contract. Um, you can put real dollars in it, absolutely, and have thresholds. And, you know, um, I think what typically happens, what I have seen, is it's more like a formula. You'd say the company's savings versus uh, pipeline or, you know, it can actually be quite complex in some of these contracts, um, how the numbers get determined. I think rather than saying $5 million, you'd probably say, you know, profitability versus length of time, the person served, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how you would make the calculation um, to determine what the person gets paid or or what the company, uh, you know, over X number of years pays out or whatever. Got it. So when you looked at the Halyard deal um, for acquiring your company, like what was your assessment of it when you first saw the paperwork that they put to you, the, the letter of intent, I guess it was? What, what, did, what, what, what reaction did you have to it? You know, if, if you haven't gathered by now, I'm kind of a pragmatist. And we were pragmatic. That, that's the other thing. A, a lot of entrepreneurs will say, my company's worth $900 million. We kind of knew what we were worth. And we knew from talking to a lot of investment bankers and doing a lot of diligence and, and going through this process, you hear from sometimes multiple parties. I think we, I can't even remember how many in that process we heard from, but the market kind of tells you what you're worth. And in that case, we had got it pretty right. Everybody else was saying, you know what, June Group is worth X. And that's kind of what we thought. Um, so it's the research aspect of it um, and, and the work you put into it. Um, 
in terms of preparation, I think brings you to a good outcome. So when we're talking to Halyard and, and the other people that were part of that process, we're all kind of on the same page about what we we're worth. And it, it became, which is the better fit for us? Who's going to help us grow faster, et cetera. And less about like how much money is this going to be? Got it. And when you come to knowing what you were worth and, and hearing from the market, other potential investors, what they thought you were worth, like what sort of valuation methodology are they using to, to arrive at a number? Well, sometimes it's top line revenue. Sometimes it's bottom line revenue. Um, and again, I'm not, I don't consider myself an expert here just from my own experience, having gone through two of these processes, first with Halyard Capital and then with Advantage Solutions more recently. Um, different kinds of companies like to use different valuations for their own purposes. You know, a larger company like Advantage, they've, they've made many purchases. They have a system. They know how to do it. Um, you know, Halyard might be more flexible. They certainly have a profile of the kind of company they like. Um, but, you know, um, Bruce E. Trough and company there, I think they could look at a company and decide there's lots of different ways to approach it. Um, and they have that freedom because they're a small independent group. Got it. So your sense is even the buyers that were coming to you, some were using a multiple of revenue, others a multiple of profit. There was no consistency per se. Um, there were consistency. Uh, there was consistency, I'd say, by the type of buyers. Everyone right. kind of okay. looked at us the same way. You know, we were looking at a, a lot of different kind of strategic back then in 2015. You know, we thought maybe a big ad tech company could buy us or, or maybe one of the agency holding companies could buy us or maybe a financial firm could buy us. And each of those sectors sort of all approaches it the same way. Which is? Um, I'm not saying they approach each sector. Some of them would look at EBITDA where some of them would say, uh, let's look at the top line. But overall, you really, at, at least for us, in our experience, we were seeing a, a pretty strong consensus among all the different players about what we could expect out of it. Kind of what, what, the, what the, the ultimate value in their minds was going to be. Mm -hmm. Did you talk to Halyard about their exit strategy out of the investment, like how they intended to exit? We did. And, and we spoke at length about that. And, you know, they uh, had a specific philosophy. We liked the philosophy. They were pragmatists, same as us. Um, you know, they, they really saw our business a little bit differently than we did. They brought a different perspective to it, but um, they understood it. And that was very important to us because, uh, you know, hopefully for your listeners, I explained it simply. I will tell you it's a rather complex operation. Um, and these were guys who could demonstrate in a short period of time, even though they were not ad tech guys, that they could play ball there and they, they could pick it up quickly and, and um, actually lend some value. So when we talked about where it could go in three to five years, they were pretty, they were, I, I thought, pretty uh, spot on about what was realistic and what we could actually expect from it. And that turned out to be critical later on because, uh, you know, we didn't have crazy expectations. None of us did. And so, it, but they were clear that, look, if we're going to invest our capital, we, we want to sell this company at some point in the future. We're not a family office that wants to hold for 50 years. They were clear that there was another exit down the road. 
Yes. And they were also clear that they could be flexible and that they did not expect things to happen in a storybook fashion. And, you know, at times it wound up being a three year engagement with them, just kind of like we all drew it up. But at times we were thinking, you know what, this might be five or six years. Maybe we're not ready. And, you know, maybe the market is this way or that way. And they were flexible um, and really pragmatic about it. Um, so that was something we always appreciated in, in our many discussions with those guys. So you ultimately sold the, or the, after Halyard invested in 2015, you then sold the, the business, I guess, again, if you will, or Halyard exited, if you will, uh, in 2018. Maybe we could talk briefly about that exit. Absolutely. It was interesting yeah, because, go ahead. yeah, once again, um, you know, how do we approach it? Uh, are we going to work with an investment banker? Which investment banker? We'd had a great um, experience with Jordan Edmiston, loved them. Um, the guys at Halyard thought very highly of them. And yet, you know, we should look at some other ones and really decide what's going to be best for this transaction. We wound up going with another group and it was not an easy decision. Um, the other group we went with was tremendous and they did a great job. Um, and they operated a little differently than the first group. Um, and, uh, you know, making those decisions was one of the toughest things, um, that we had to, had to do together, but we had a great methodology for having, talking these things through. And, um, you know, we, we all got a broad consensus on, on the right way to approach it. I want to come back to your advice around finding an M&A professional. I want to come back to that. But maybe talk a little bit about what precipitated. Like, was there a triggering event that made you think now is a time to sell to group to, to another buyer? What, like, what precipitated that? You know, for us, it was a constant analysis. And, and I think one of the things we do well is really look hard at the market and look hard at our products and, and see where things are. And, you know, 2016, 2017, we started to foresee a lot of the consolidation um, that, that has happened in, in the ad tech market specifically, you know, your, your uh, listeners may not be too familiar, but everyone knows that Google and Facebook and now Amazon are monsters. Um, and, you know, those who pay a little more attention see AT&T and Verizon and others sort of massing to compete. And smaller companies like ours for years had 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 great growth trajectories and lots of promise. We started to see that, you know, maybe as a little independent company, we weren't going to be able to have that same track record of success and that it, it probably was time to partner with somebody larger that had some more weight in the marketplace. And so those discussions, it wasn't like it was just one day. It was a constant revisiting, um, I would say, week by week, month by month with Halyard and with uh, the partners here about what our opportunities were and how we could continue to grow. You know, I think complacency will kill you in a business like mine. And um, we just are constantly looking for the next move and the, the big change. And sometimes it's incremental, but other times you really have to move quickly. Were you worried about like a Google or a, a Verizon coming up with a competitive product? Not so much because we, we compete with those guys all the time and we offer value that that's just different. Um, and, you know, a lot of big Fortune 500 brands invest massive amounts of money with those guys. Those budgets are already gone before we walk into the room. So we're competitive with them and in a way not really because we're, we're sort of swimming in different waters. and. Um, our company, there's plenty of room for us to expand 
Um, so, of course, we watch them carefully and have great respect for, for their products because I think they're terrific. But, you know, we're pretty special, too, and, and always felt pretty confident that we could deliver value for our clients and we would reward them for using us. So you you hired this M&A firm to, to sell. Um, take us through that process. You, you, I'm assuming you got multiple offers for the company, uh, ultimately? We did. Um, we hired a firm this time around called Petsky Prunier, and uh, we had known them for years, uh, you know, all the way back since before 2015. They were another firm that we had always recognized, in our opinion, was a just elite, top firm, great people. This time, for a whole host of reasons, we thought they were the best fit for us for this transaction. Um, and they did a tremendous job, again, of educating us and helping us prepare and helping us articulate uh, our value. Um, one of the things they said to us was, you guys really stand out because you're so profitable, because you're so disciplined. A lot of other companies can't say that. We, we had, you know, by 2017, when we got into this, consistently showed growth in a really uh, regular, consistent way. And, um, you know, How a, big are a, you by 2017 in terms of revenue or number of employees or whatever? Uh, let's see, 2017, we probably had about 75 people. We're up over 100 now. Wow. Wow. So, so much bigger indeed. And, and what was, was it the halyard capital that allowed you to grow so quickly? Was that a big piece of the equation? Um, Halyard's expertise helped us grow quickly. Uh, we didn't need the capital, and I should have said that earlier. It was really kind of an interesting thing because a lot of, a lot of companies, I think, do these transactions because they need the infusion of cash. That was not us. Um, we were profitable. We were fine. Halyard lent us a credibility in the marketplace. Having a, a really respected institution like that uh, as part of you we, we were ready to have different and larger conversations with our clients and Halyard enabled us to do that. And their expertise and the formation of our board of directors and our board of advisors just made a big difference. It was a different company after that. And I think we, were, we didn't even realize how much we needed it until we had it. As you evaluated the offers that came in in 2017, 2018, um, whose decision is it to, to accept one or the other? Because now you've if got four parts. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you've got, you've got partners, one of whom has left, but now you're down to three original founding partners. And then you've got Halyard, like assuming there's some sort of board of directors that makes the call. Like, how, did it, how were you structured? Well, the, our board of directors consisted of the partners of June Group and uh, the partners of Halyard that had participated in the transaction. Um, so there were, there were three of them and three of us. And, you know, by now we've worked together for two and a half, three years. We've been through some battles. We've had our ups. We've had our downs. We've had arguments and disagreements and gotten through them together, just like any other group of people. Um, and when this stuff started to come in, we already had a methodology for evaluating it. And, you know, we could just speak frankly with one another. It never was emotional. Um, it was always pragmatic. Um, and, uh the decisions, in my estimation, when you're going through something like this, if you take your time and you really think about it, the, the, the decisions make themselves. Um, you know, the, the folks at Advantage Solutions, um, I hit it off with, uh, with their representatives and the guy who is now my, my uh, boss, his name is Gary Colin. You know, I, I could just see his vision for this. I could 
uh, tell that he understood where we were coming from, that their needs fit our capabilities so quickly and vice versa. Um, and uh, it just was the right thing for a whole host of reasons beyond, you know, the, the numbers. Um, and in those meetings, you know, at, at that point, you can imagine a roadshow and pitches and multiple meetings and telephone calls and conference calls. You're really working day and night. Halyard isn't really a part of those conversations. Hmm. However, after each of them, they'd say, how'd it go? And we'd tell them. And, and they could tell that we were really feeling comfortable with these guys and, and that it was important to us who would be continuing to, to land with a group of people that we could, we could thrive with and, and really um, help. And, and so that was definitely a, a big part of everybody's um, thinking at that time. What was the, you know, as you received offers the second, again, 2017, 2018, you know, the first time you sold the first tranche of capital in 2015, it, it sounded like most of the offers kind of valued you guys in and around the same amount. Was it the same case in, in the, the next time or was there a big delta or difference between the sort of winning bid and, and, and others? Was there a huge gap between offers? Well, this time it was a little different. Um, here we had private equity firms also and strategics. And, you know, the partners were leaning towards selling to a strategic. Um, we just felt like it was time for us to, to get a big partner in the marketplace, as I indicated earlier, sort of for business reasons. We like that better. I will say that we met some really amazing private equity firms also. And, and sometimes the offers were structured a little differently, you know, a little more cash here, you know, different, different um, sort of perks and, and um, benefits to, to each. Um, but again, the advantage solution of all advantage solutions of all the people uh, that we spoke to on either the financial side or the strategic side really stood out to us as the right fit for us. And it became clear um, as, as the process went on. So I understand that, uh, as part of that, you've agreed to stay on uh, personally with Advantage Solutions working for Gary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm here. Um, and, uh, it's now two partners. Um, our, uh, third partner had been with us for all this time and he just felt like, you know what, after this guys, it's a good time for me to leave completely. Um, amicable on all sides. Everybody agreed. Uh, Advantage knew he was going to be leaving when, when we made this transition. And it, it worked out great for him and, and perfect timing for us. So now there's two of us. And, um, you know, we, we wanted to be here. Um, so there was definitely a commitment that we made. And, and uh, you know, my partner, Corey, and I are, are here to make sure that Advantage gets what they need out of this uh, great investment that they've made. And our employees and, and uh, everybody that's involved in June Group, you know, when, when you're in my position at this point, you feel responsibility to so many different people. Um, you know, it, it really is, is a weighty thing. There's so many different families and um, different groups that, that are, are depending on you to do your job well and make good decisions. Um, it's very different than the early days when, you know, it was the Wild West and we could uh, fly by the seat of our pants. Do you ever feel any sense of like maybe I don't know the right word? Um, do you ever think that that you personally would have liked the opportunity to fully exit 
Um, do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Like go do something totally else, like go surfing or you know go travel Europe or something. Like, do you ever just personally feel like, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute, maybe maybe now is my turn to to exit? Yeah, you know that time will come for me. I'm not sure when. Um, Corey's a little younger than I am, <laughs> a little bit, quite young. Uh, he's only 32, and I've been in this business a lot longer. And when I say this business, my advertising career is a lot longer than his. So that day will probably come before his does. Um, but for now, I, I just I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I, I, I just work with such amazing people. I'm so proud of the team we built here. In my 30-year career, I've never had the privilege of working with such an amazing group of talent. So I, I just love it. And it is very hard work. Uh, it is frustrating, maddening even at times, but that's just part of it. Um, so that's, I'm just sort of focused on doing my thing right now. And um, like I said, I, it, my one word is gratitude. I'm grateful for all the people that work here. I'm grateful for the experience we had with Halyard. I'm grateful for Gary and the folks at Advantage who are all wonderful. Um, and uh, not thinking too much about riding off into the sunset uh, right now. When you do, I'd love to do a, a part two on this interview for sure. Talk to me a little bit about your your uh, your personal uh, approach to sort of the money side of things. I guess you mentioned in the beginning that you sort of you had a wife and kids, and you know, like you took a big risk in in starting the company. Now that you've had these two successful exits. Have you bought yourself a trophy? Is there any sort of thing that you've <laughs> you you've indulged in to uh, to sort of mark the success? Oh man, I have two kids in college, so um, <laughs> I, I guess that's the trophy. Um, you know, I I as I've said, I'm, I'm just a pragmatic guy. I just you know, my wife and I we we bought this little starter house in 1997, and we figured we'd live there for two or three years, and we're still there. And <laughs> nice. we love it. It's it's a great house, and you Perfect. know, I just. Um, I think that my personal level of stress is, is a little lower, um, than those early days. And, you know, we've sort of earned a, a little bit of uh, financial security in my family after so many years of, of hard work and not just me, but you, know, you can imagine, uh, this is not easy for my wife and she was so supportive through so many ups and downs. Um, so it's, it's nice to be at a, at a different level, um, but honestly, I get up every day with the same fire in my belly about just wanting to get get into the office early and get to work because there's so much to do, and that that's really what drives me. Got it. Well, it's been a successful ride. I, I, I will look forward from the sidelines to see how it all uh, shapes out, and and uh, wish you well. Is there a way that we can uh, reach out if people want to say hi? Is there you want to point them to a website or or a social media handle? What's the best way for folks to say hi? Absolutely, uh, we're on Twitter. Uh, for those of you who use that, at June Group J U N. Um, we are uh, not big Facebook users, but you can certainly find us on LinkedIn and. Uh, your, your listeners can reach out to me. I am not hard to find if you go to our website. Uh, always happy to help other entrepreneurs. If, if uh, my journey can make anybody else's journey a little bit easier, I'm, I'm delighted to uh, support people because I know how hard it is. Um, and I, I really want to just maybe if we're getting toward the end here, state that clearly that this is not a fairy tale. We, we lived through some terrible times and really struggled. And for all of you out there who dream about getting to this place where I'm at, 
you know, it's, it's just a daily grind. And the best advice I ever got from anybody was just don't stop. You know, as long as you keep going, you'll get someplace great. Well, words to part with. Thank you, Mitchell. It was great to meet you and appreciate uh, you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.